hopefully it's become pretty clear that the theme that we're talking about this morning is this theme of following Jesus. And so um, that's, again, that's what we're going to talk about today. We're going to jump back into the same Matthew passage we've looked at a few other times, as well as some other passages. But we're going to begin in just a moment um, after I pray with uh, an illustration from a book called Prince Caspian. If you guys are familiar with the Chronicles of Narnia, uh, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe is book one. Book two is Prince Caspian. And uh, in basically what happens is in this uh, Prince Caspian, the second story, 1,300 years, 1,300 years has passed since uh, the Pevensey children have left Narnia. So when they are pulled back into Narnia to come to the rescue of Prince Caspian, the rightful king of Narnia, they have no idea that it's been so long. And so the, the world uh, of Narnia has changed drastically. They, they actually land in Ker Paravel, which is their, own, their old castle, and they don't even recognize it because it's fallen into disrepair. And then they try to make their way to the place called the Stone Table. But again, everything's changed. The landscape has changed. Everything's radically different. There's one point at which Aslan, who is the Christ figure, appears um, only to Lucy, if you guys are familiar with the book or the story. And she then has to try to convince the others to follow him, and uh, even if nobody else does. And so in just a moment, I'm going to open up with that section of the story and, uh, and then we'll read it and we'll jump in. Let's take a moment, let's pray. Father, um, clearly part of what your son Jesus came to do is to live a life that we couldn't live, to die a death that you weren't willing for us to die. But also part of what Jesus came to do is to invite us to follow him. And so Father, I pray um, that we would hear uh, Jesus' voice today inviting us to follow him. And I pray, Father, that you would strengthen us and equip us for the task um, of following your Son. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So beginning in uh, Prince Caspian, I'll begin with the point at which Lucy sees Aslan. Look, 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 cried Lucy. Where, what, asked everyone. The lion, said Lucy. Aslan himself, didn't you see? Her face had changed completely and her eyes shone. Do you mean, began Peter. Where did you think you saw him, asked Susan. Don't talk like a grown-up, said Lucy, stamping her foot. I didn't think I saw him. I saw him. Where, Lou, asked Peter. Right up there between those mountain ashes. No, not this side of the gorge, the other. And up, not down. Just the opposite of the way you want to go. And he wanted us to go where he was, up there. How do you know that's what he wanted, asked Edmund. He, I, I just know, said Lucy, by his face. The others all looked around at each other in puzzled silence. The only question is whether Aslan really was there. But I know he was, said Lucy, her eyes filling with tears. Yes, Lou, but we don't, you see, said Peter. There's nothing to it but a vote, said Edmund. At this point in time, the, uh, the siblings got together and voted, and everyone voted not to follow Lucy except for Edmund. And of course, this broke her heart. And the chapter ends by saying, and Lucy came last of the party, crying bitterly. So instead of following Aslan alone, she followed the others. One of the things that C.S. Lewis does a fantastic job here and throughout his writings is showing how following Jesus is often scary, and it's hard, and it's lonely. And it's especially hard and scary and lonely in a post-Christian culture, which is what we live in today. There's an article called Following Aslan in the Chaos of Modern Culture by Sharon McKeeman in Relevant Magazine, and she has this to say as she talks about this passage from Prince Caspian. She says this, Of course, most will know Aslan as a Christ figure and an image of God the Father. 
When it comes to following him alone or not at all, Lucy makes the same choice we often do and remains with the crowd instead of stepping out in faith. Can we blame her or ourselves when we do likewise? Asa did not call Lucy by name or silence the naysayers or spell out a coherent plan. He just showed Lucy a passing glimpse of himself. Lucy's quest led her and her companions through a land where many told her she was silly for thinking that she had seen the mystical king. In that time, for Narnia, things had become ordinary. For us, our journey is, as Eugene Peterson terms it, a long obedience in the same direction. These days, most will tell us faith is a fairy tale, and social media serves up comparison and conformity for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. In the end, amid the noise and criticism, we stand isolated, perhaps wondering if we ever even glimpsed the king. So this relevant article by McKeon and the quote from C.S. Lewis, what they share is what they think about following Jesus. But the question is, what does the Bible have to tell us about following Jesus? The Bible makes it clear that following him is costly, but the Bible also makes it clear that following Jesus is absolutely worth it. Let's jump into the idea that following Jesus is costly. We're going to jump right back into that Matthew chapter 4 passage. Although, uh, as I did the research for this, let me tell you, there's many, many passages that make this point. But we're going to jump into this story in particular. As Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. They were in a boat with their father, Zebedee, preparing their nets. Jesus called them, and immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. And so in this little narrative alone, there are at least three costs to following Jesus. The first is a social cost. Verse 19 says, come follow me, Jesus said, and I will, will send you out to fish for people, which, by the way, is actually a literal translation there. It can be that or to fish for men, either one, but it's ac accurate to say it this way. But you've got to ask initially, well, what is the cost for being a fisher of men, or what's the cost of fishing for people? And the answer is that in America, over the last 200 years, not so much, really. But for Peter and Andrew, the price that they would pay for following Jesus was disdain and contempt from the religious leaders of their world, right? The, the Sadducees and the Pharisees would have looked down upon them with disdain and with contempt. The Romans were no better. Uh, they had some space for the Jews and for the Jewish religion, um, but they definitely wouldn't have looked kindly upon these men who followed Jesus. In fact, in the end, many of them were killed by the Romans. And then when Paul spoke to the great thinkers of Athens on Mars Hill, they mocked him. There has always been and will always be a social cost to following Jesus. I sat at Bluefin this last week with a friend of mine who is uh, an ardent atheist and who frankly thinks that every other Christian on the planet is either foolish or an idiot um, or at least short-sighted, except for me. Somehow he has a category for me as not being one of those things. But it's interesting as we went back and forth and kind of talked, um, you know, and again, we meet and chat all the time, but I was very clear with him. I really believe that Jesus rose from the dead, and that's why I follow him. And you could just see him sort of pause there for a moment and look at me like I had three heads. Like, what in the world are you saying? There's always a social cost. 
There's a man named Jonathan Haidt, who is a social psychologist at NYU, and I watched an interview with him the other day, and I, I love him, actually. He's great. He's a big advocate for, for free speech, so I really enjoy him. But as he was being interviewed, the interviewer was asking him about religion and basically the f- various disciplines in academia. And he said this. He said, people who believe in God should be barred from doctoral programs in the hard sciences because of their presupposition about the supernatural, which clouds and competes with their objectivity in science. In other words, what he was basically saying is he was saying, I wouldn't permit somebody who claimed to be a Christian into a doctoral program because they they just can't be trusted. They're not objective. There's a cost there. If you thought that following Jesus was actually going to make your life easier, some people have said that, (laughs) then you need to think again because there's always going to be a social cost to following Jesus. People will actually be a little bit (laughs) suspicious of you. Some people will dismiss you as a simpleton. Others will categorize you as a threat there will always be a social cost to following Jesus. We see that in this passage for James and John and for Peter and Andrew, but we also see a vocational cost as well. And so let's look at this vocational financial cost. Verse 20 says, at once they left their nets and followed him. And so in this case, the vocational and the financial cost, it's very clear. Peter, Andrew, James, and John were all at work. Their job was to be fishermen. When Jesus called them to follow him, each of them left their nets and followed Jesus. And not only that, but for the next three years, they depended on charity, giving up the security of a regular income and the stability of a predictable job to follow around the person of Jesus. You know, a little while ago, you heard Steve telling of his daughter Morgan and her husband Randy going to serve in Kenya. And if you think about it, they could have very easily stayed right here in the United States of America. And as a nurse, Morgan could have made absolutely great money. They could have had an incredibly stable life. And instead, they made a decision that would make them dependent upon the gifts of friends and families and individuals and churches while Morgan serves Kenyan women in childbirth, right? Like, from the world's perspective, that just doesn't seem to make sense too much sense. There's a cost. I have a doctor friend in Gainesville, Georgia, who left his practice to work with street children in Honduras, right? There's just a cost. Eric Little, uh, the man that ran in the 20s in the Olympics, left the glory and fame of professional sports to take the person and story of Jesus to the Chinese people, uh, eventually dying in an internment camp. Little died on the 21st of February, 1945, five months before liberation, A witness later wrote, the entire camp, especially its youth, was stunned for days. So great was the vacuum that Eric's death had left. According to a fellow missionary, Little's last words were, it's complete surrender. In other words, the Christian life isn't partial surrender. It's not partially following Jesus. It's complete surrender in reference to how he lived his life to God. Many of you are familiar with Chick-fil-A. Chick-fil-A was founded by Truett Cathy upon Christian principles. In 2018, Chick-fil-A posted a $10 billion revenue, $10 billion with a B. And that's after being open for six days a week, not seven. So not being open on Sundays cost them a seventh or 14% of what they could have been making in profit, meaning the cost of following Jesus for the Kathy family last year alone was $1,400,000,000. I'd say that's a financial cost to following Jesus, right? 
In order to follow Jesus, you don't have to quit your job. It's possible, but it's not necessary. It may not even be likely. You don't have to choose a job as a missionary in Kenya or in China. You don't have to be a pastor or a young life leader or CEO staff where you don't make much money. But when God does call you, you need to follow. And following Jesus' call in your life will always be costly. There will always be a social cost. There will always be a vocational, financial cost. And finally, we see in this passage that there's also a relational cost. Again, Steve hinted at this earlier. Verse 21 and 22 say this. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. They were in a boat with their father, Zebedee, preparing their nets. Jesus called them, and immediately they left their boat and their father and followed him. In the midst of this passage, it's easy to miss the relational cost. There's a gripping imagery here, though, when Jesus walks along the shore and he calls out to these fishermen, follow me and I'll make you fishers of humans. It's shocking when we see them drop their nets in order to follow him. But what about Zebedee? What about the dad left in the boat? Two times in this one verse, Matthew highlights that James and John are his sons and that he is their father. What about the relational cost to Zebedee? He's losing his boys The sons are leaving their father in order to follow this man, Jesus. It's small compared to Morgan and to Randy moving to Kenya, and it's small compared to Eric Little moving to China, but when Krista and I decided to go into ministry, it very much changed the relational trajectory of our lives. I mean, I work essentially Saturday afternoon and evening, and then I work on Sundays, and so it sounds tiny, but it makes it incredibly difficult to go visit family for the weekend. Like a lot of people... Friday afternoon, we're going to go see family. We just don't get to do that, right? Because 45 Sundays a year, I'm here. And that's a cost. But the problem is, it's not just a cost for us. It's been a very real cost for our families as well. But it's been the cost of following Jesus. Following Jesus is always costly. It's relationally costly. It's financially costly. It's socially costly. There's a cost. And that's just a couple of the costs. You can look at the New Testament. There are many, many more. And so the question is, why would anyone choose to follow Jesus? If there's a cost, why would we do that? And the answer is because following Jesus is worth it. We're going to look at Luke chapter 9, verses 22 through 24. And again, there are lots of different verses that will make similar points. Jesus says this, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. There's some cost right there for Jesus. And he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. And so when we hear the phrase, take up your cross, we immediately think about the crucifixion, right? I mean, that's pretty clear. It would be logical to think that what Jesus is saying here is, if you follow me, you're going to die. Or more accurately, if you follow me, you're going to be put to death. That's a more accurate sort of understanding. And though that might have been true eventually for some of the disciples, I don't actually think that's what Jesus was getting at in this passage. Uh, I think it was a little bit different. I think in verse 24, we see something that brings some clarity to this. In verse 24, Jesus says, whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Jesus actually doesn't use the typical Greek word for life, which is bios. Instead, he uses the word psyche or self. So think about 
that for a moment. Think about what he's saying. He's saying, for whoever would save himself or his self will lose it. But whoever loses his self for my sake will save it. It's a little bit of a different understanding there. Tim Keller, while writing on this passage, says that Jesus is speaking radically about psychological, the psychological inner self. Your old way of having an identity, of gaining a sense of self, has got to end. In a sense, you have to die to it. And I can give you a whole new identity. That's what Jesus is saying. You'll have to get a, a whole new true self. That's what Jesus is saying here. Is he's saying you have to die to your old self, and I'll give you a new self. Now, if, if this verse doesn't bother you, you're probably not really listening to it or really reading it. Jesus tells us that if we choose him, we have to deny ourselves and every day we must take up our cross and actively follow where he leads. Right? So this is not a one-time following. It's not a one-time denying. It's not a one-time dying. It's every single day being willing to die to ourselves. This charge of Jesus is completely antithetical to what our culture teaches. Our culture teaches you that you should follow your heart, but Jesus, on the other hand, tells us that we should follow him. Why would we do that? Because in following him, we'll lose our lives, but we'll gain something infinitely better. Here's what C.S. Lewis has to say in Mere Christianity about this very passage. Give up yourself, and you will find your real self. Lose your life, and you will save it. Submit to death, death of your ambitions and favorite wishes every day, and death of your whole body. In the end, submit with every fiber of your being, and you will find eternal life. Keep back nothing. Nothing that you have not given away will really be yours. Nothing in you that has not died will ever be raised from the dead. Look for yourself, and you will find in the long run only hatred, loneliness, despair, rage, ruin, and decay. Think about that for a moment. Think about what you know about the psychological health of the world that we live in today after we followed that advice. And then C.S. Lewis goes on to say, but look for Christ and you'll find him. And with him, everything else thrown in. Look for Christ and you will find him and with him, everything else thrown in. The reward for following Jesus is Jesus. The reward for following Jesus is Jesus. It's what David, the man after God's own heart, wrote in Psalm 27 verse 4 when he said, One thing I ask from the Lord this only do I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze on the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his holy temple. We don't get married to have someone make us dinner. We don't marry someone so they can make money and they can buy us a wonderful life. We don't marry someone for security or for safety or to be a trophy. Any good husband marries his wife and he knows that his wife is his reward. We follow Jesus to get Jesus. And according to C.S. Lewis, we get everything else thrown in, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, forgiveness, righteousness, adoption, and true life. That's why Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. That's what Jesus is offering. Following Jesus is costly, 
but it's worth it because we get Jesus and then we get to live that life that is truly life. The beginning, we talked about that story from Prince Caspian where we read about Lucy uh, failing to follow Aslan. Instead of following him alone, she remained with the crowd. She remained with the others. The next night, however, Aslan appeared to her again and there was a different outcome this time. I'm gonna jump back into page 132 uh, from Prince Caspian. C.S. Lewis writes this, Lucy woke out of the deepest sleep you can imagine with the feeling that the voice she liked best in the world had been calling her name. She thought at first it was her father's voice, but that didn't seem quite right. Then she thought it was Peter's voice, but that didn't seem to fit either. Lucy came the call again, neither her father's voice nor Peter's. She sat up, trembling with excitement, but not with fear. And then, oh joy, for he was there, the huge lion, shining white in the moonlight with his huge black shadow underneath him. And the next thing she knew was that she was kissing him and putting her arms as far around his neck as she could and burying her face in the beautiful, rich silkiness of his mane. Aslan, dear Aslan, Lucy sobbed at last. The great beast rolled over on his side so that Lucy fell, half sitting, half lying between his front paws. He bent forward and just touched her nose with his tongue. His warm breath came all around her. She gazed into the large, wise face. Welcome, child, he said. Now, child, said Aslan, I will wait here. Go and wake the others and tell them to follow. If they will not, then you at least must follow me alone. This time, in the middle of the night, Lucy wakes up the others, and with a great amount of difficulty and grumpiness, they eventually follow her as she follows Aslan. And Aslan leads the children down into a gorge, down deeper into a valley, across a river, and up the other side to where he was been, has been trying to lead them the whole time. Jump back into the, the narrative. Lucy was nearly blown when the tail and hind legs of Aslan disappeared over the top. But with one last effort, she scrambled after him and came out rather shaky-legged and breathless on the hill they'd been trying to reach ever since they left Glasswater. The long, gentle slope stretched up to where it vanished in a glimmer of trees about half a mile away. She knew it. It was the hill of the stone table. And those of you who know the story know that the stone table was the place where Aslan willingly gave up his life to forgive Edmund for his treachery. It's the Narnian cross. The ability to follow Jesus never finds its source in us, in our ability, in our record, in our faithfulness, in our strength. Our ability to follow Jesus always is found in Jesus and seeing him at the cross. It was at the cross that Jesus proved his love for us. How much did Jesus love you? How much does he care? Enough to lay down his life so that you might be with him where he is. Now this morning in this room, we have these tables. On this side of the room, we have tables with bread and wine. And on that side of the room, we have tables with bread and grape juice. And what these tables represent is that Jesus did everything that was required for you to be in a relationship with him and with his father. Jesus did all that was required in order to enable you to follow him. And more importantly, Jesus knew that your following him, like Lucy's, would be filled with failures. Uh, and like Peter's, would be filled with denials and rebellions. And like Thomas's, with doubts. And the reason that he gives us this meal is that we would hear the voice of God declaring through this bread 
and this wine that you are forgiven. Right? You are forgiven for all of your sins, past, present, and future. Right? That in this meal, that it would be a picture of the family table with God and with Jesus and with your brothers and sisters in Christ, and that your seat at that table isn't given to you because of your righteousness, because of your perfection, because of your goodness, but rather your seat at this family table of God is given to you simply because you trust in Christ alone. Your ability to follow Jesus comes precisely because you understand just how much Jesus was willing to pay in order for you to be with him where he is. And this meal today represents all of that. I'm going to read the words of institution, and then I'm going to ask you just take a moment, and it's an opportunity for you to confess. It's an opportunity for you to confess where you have not followed Jesus, but it's also an opportunity um, more than anything for you to receive the forgiveness that Jesus offers you through his perfect life, his death and resurrection. And if you're someone yet who hasn't come to that point of following Jesus, then this is an opportunity for you to do just that, to ponder what it would mean for you to follow this person that offers you that life that is truly life. Jesus said this, or actually Paul said this, for I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus on the night he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body which is for you, do this in remembrance of me. In the same way after supper he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's take a moment. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you're always inviting us um, to experience your grace and mercy. And not only that, Father, but your word makes it clear that you um, provided this reminder of your grace and your mercy in this bread and wine. And you commanded us um, to receive it. Father, I pray that as we receive this bread and wine, that it would be a visceral and tactile reminder of all that's true about the gospel, that we are forgiven, that we are loved, that we are declared not guilty, uh, that we are your children, Father, that we're safe, um, that there's no more wrath for us because you poured out your punishment upon your son. And so, Father, as we sit here this morning, I pray that we would hear all those declarations of the good news of Jesus in this meal of bread and wine. We pray these things now in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ.